AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hey, Matt, I hear we've had more fun with DVRs. It's always more fun to be had with DVRs. <laughs> it just seems like an endless fountain of interesting bugs. So Ezekiel Fernandez, Argentinian security researcher, discovered this bug in a line of cameras that are sold under the brand TBK. And if you make a web request to a certain URL and you add a cookie that says UID equals admin, it will return to you some information about the device, including the password. Once you have a, an administrative password to manage a device, you might be able to change settings like maybe where a camera is pointing, depending on the model of the DVR, maybe you can stop recordings or start recordings or delete recordings. So he, he published this bug earlier, it has a CVE number associated with it. Turns out they're selling the same exact hardware with the same exact code under a different brand name. Brand so there are even more of these devices out there. And he's released his tool, which is called Get DVR Credentials. I believe that's, you know, it's a pretty obvious name. And it makes it much easier for someone to just go ahead and, and query these things for their passwords. As far as we know, there's no current exploitation of this bug. But given how simple it is, right. I would not expect to wait very long for this to start appearing in the wild. If you use any sort of web-enabled camera systems for DVR, this would be a good opportunity to research and find out if your brand is affected. Is this, this is an administrative interface, the kind of thing that shouldn't ever be on the internet anyway? It's, it's sort of like, a, if I look at the URL for it, it seems like something that's an administrative interface. I'm not sure why you would ever point the web interface of one of these sorts of devices to the internet, unless you know, you're somebody who just doesn't know what's possible in terms of securing your devices, in which case you may just put it on the internet and assume that because it has a username and password prompt, it is secure. Having you know, DVRs openly available on the internet is generally a bad idea. These are the kinds of devices that you want on an isolated you know, administrative network that's firewalled off from the rest of the enterprise, that only the people who need to have access to it have access to it. It's, you know, the standard thing we talk about all the time with these IoT devices or small office, home office networking stuff is, you know, most of them don't have an automatic update mechanism. And how many of the users actually take the time to go and update the, the firmware on Sure. Well, how many wouldn't even know that it needs to be updated? Exactly. Again, I think we talk about this a lot too, is that these things are treated as appliances and not mm -hmm. as computers. So why would you have to update your, your appliance? Well, because it's, it's a computer, just like many of the other appliances in your house are slowly becoming. Right. Yeah, the, way, the day you have to patch your toaster and your, and your, your refrigerator, your refrigerator and, and, and washer and dryer. Yeah. What do you think, Stan? Yeah, I'm a little surprised that you can get in without a password, you know, for this yeah. administrative interface. Maybe it's the password reset feature. I'm trying to understand what feature this supports. This is for? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm sitting here and just like thinking, like, what feature is this supporting? Uh, you know, why would you expose the password like that? But uh, well, Looking at the specific URL, it's passing in a command called list. 
Yeah. Which to me sounds like it might be some sort of configuration display function, yeah. which I think we've seen a lot in devices where it's like, so what's the config of the device? Well, we just, we'll just put in a URL for that, yeah, just well, to show like, you what it is. Like, like the default status page you can set up on an Apache you know, web server to... To show you how many how many threads are running and, and the, you know, the version of the yeah. software that's running and you know whether it's got PHP oh, in the version that that kind of stuff you know. But like this thing. But even that, I really that's giving the bad guys. And you more would usually turn that off outside of development anyway, right? Yeah, because yeah, that, that's giving the bad guys more information than I really want them yeah. to have Include. most of the time. Include. The best you can do in this situation is patch the devices. Um, obviously the vulnerability gives far too much control to an arbitrary attacker and accessing the, the functionality that allows you to use the bug doesn't even require you to log in as a regular user. So patching is, is a great option. Hey Jim, Matt was telling us about like these exposed passwords, but you have another story about passwords and Twitter and GitHub. Yeah, the last week, tail end of the week, there was a lot of press about Twitter was recommending that everybody change their password because they had been recording passwords in the clear in log files. I, I think Twitter actually responded responsibly. They discovered that they had this issue, they fixed it, and they promptly said, we don't believe any passwords were exposed except maybe to a handful of employees. But go ahead and change your password, you know, as a, as a precaution. Twitter wasn't saying that they had actually had a breach. They were just saying that they had looked at their own code and realized that they had a flaw and they should never have been logging the passwords in the first place. And for good measure, people should be changing their passwords. This came just, you know, less than a week, I think, after GitHub had discovered that they had some plain text passwords that were being logged in log files as well when people were changing their passwords. It, it, on GitHub, it was when you were doing a password change that it was recording it. I'm not exactly sure, but it sounds like on Twitter, they were recording them a little more often. Yeah, and, and people were giving them a hard time, you know, they should never have passwords in the clear. Well, that's not the way the authentication actually works. Even the way that they had implemented their password checking wasn't necessarily at fault. It was simply the act of, of logging it to disk, which should not have occurred. People were giving them a hard time about it, but in fact, that's the way that you know, probably 95 or 99% of the authentication actually works, is you encrypt the tunnel, you send the password across in the clear, you do the hashing on the other end, and do the comparison there. So. Mm. So the password is does end up in the clear over there, but ideally it would never be Safety stored any place, you know, never written to disk any place, just in memory long enough to do the comparison, and then you throw it away. I agree with Jim uh, that I think they did a, the right thing for all of their users. They discovered a problem, they fixed it, and they let people know what they should do to protect themselves. I think they did the right thing. When they realized it, they fixed it. It's an internal log file that only employees had access to, so there's no reason to believe that there are criminals that have access mm -hmm. to all of this. Out of abundance of caution. And out of abundance of caution, they said, go ahead and change it. They, you know, the, uh, the other thing you could do is set up two-factor two authentication. You know, nearly everybody's got some form of multi-factor authentication available now. So I, I, 
I think I think Twitter got some unfair criticism on this. I think they they handled it properly. I, I think a lot of places that aren't used to reporting security news treated it the same way they would treat an actual breach. Right, as if the bad guys, you know, as if criminals had gotten a hold of it. Right, right. which is not what happened. Right, as far as we know. As far as we know. But that's the thing. There's no evidence of any sort of real breach. This is just them mm -hmm. saying we have made a mistake. We are sorry for it. Here's what you can do. And here's what we've done. And that's that sort of transparency that really should get them more respect right. than it should I, anything else. You, they should be applauded for being transparent about it. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. I think it's important uh, when companies make these kinds of discoveries, you know, they were very upfront and they told everybody the best thing that they could do for themselves, which is to reset their own passwords. If a company like Twitter or GitHub says it's time to change your password, go ahead and change your password. They ought to be changed periodically anyway. You should be having different kinds of passwords on all the different websites that you have. So don't reuse your Twitter password, let's say, for GitHub or for something else, like your personal email. You should try to have a different password for each site. A lot of people nowadays like to use like a password manager just to make sure you're generating a random password for each site. Dan, it seems like there's a bug in a piece of software that a whole bunch of us actually use on a daily basis. Yes. So actually, the story I read was in PC Gamer magazine, and it's about 7-Zip. So 7-Zip is a popular file compression and decompression program, and it supports a plethora of formats. Uh, it turns out that there is a file parsing bug in the way that it supports a certain type of RAR file. I actually did a, a deeper dive uh, and to try to understand what is this vulnerability all about. Uh, and I found the original source of the guy who discovered the vulnerability. His name is Dave, and he does a wonderful write-up of the bug and how he does it. So apparently with the RAR file format, um, there's, a, there's something, and I didn't know this, uh, solid, I think solid block compression. So when you have like a zip file, you can put a lot of different files into the zip file but they might be very similar. So if you zip each one individually, you might not get the best compression ratio. Mm -hmm. But if you pretend they were all one big file and then zip that whole big file, It'll you get a better, pattern, so yeah. yes, you will get the better compression ratio. So uh, somewhere in the <laughs> multitude of this raw uncompressor, uh, there's this, whatever, this feature that he was basically able to abuse. And if you read his blog, there's actually a couple of interesting things that really, I feel like I should be friends with Dave. So this is a good bug hunters write-up of a vulnerability in 7-Zip if you're interested in that side of things. The long and short of it for most people is that there is a bug, you should patch it. Um, because in the future, if you encounter a specially crafted RAR file that was designed the way that this bug writer intended it to, you could be infected just by opening up a 7-zip file. So basically, it was able to create a file that when you right-click it and say extract, it would then go ahead and launch an exploit, which would launch like calculator.exe, just as a proof of concept. Mm -hmm. And I think he got something like he tested it a bunch of times using a couple of different Windows operating systems. Uh, and he got like 99.99% reliability in his exploit. So he's able to launch calc.exe a lot. I so mean, does just, the bug affect, is it just Windows? Is it Linux? Because 7-Zip's on multiple platforms, right? Right. I think everybody should upgrade 
you know, whatever version they have, Linux or Windows, but it did seem to be Windows-centric. So everybody should make sure that if they have it on Windows, they need to get to the latest version, uh, which is 1805. You know, from what I was reading, everything that they described was in Windows. The guy only targeted the Windows compiled versions of 7-zip. Okay. Not because you'd need a different exploit to get it. Yes. To get it to actually execute on on a Linux box in the exactly the portable 7-zip version over there does have a few minor differences. Yes, and this one would have to be with like a raw file compressor. Okay. So it has something to do with how the raw decoder works and how that whole library works. It's actually, I guess it was at the crossroads of some external library that was being used. But, you know, it's patched now, patches available. You can like compile from source if you're feeling uh, bad about it. Any program that's trying to parse multiple formats, that's going to inherently be complex software. I remember reading the, the antivirus hacker's handbook, and this is the same thing that they impressed upon me is, you've got a program that has to open everything and open it correctly all the time with all the little idiosyncrasies of each file format. And getting that correct is, is almost impossible. So you're gonna have file format parsing bugs all over the place in this thing. Yes. So I feel like 7-zip, if it's only had two in the last year, and this is not you know, saying that it's, it's poorly written software, I'm just no, saying that's, exactly. that's fairly lucky. You know? You'd like your tools to be as simple as possible, but then, you need, then you'd need hundreds of them to handle all of the different formats. So you know, it's one of the trade-offs. It's true. Any sufficiently complex piece of software is going to have bugs. You need to keep on top of it when there are new versions out that patch these vulnerabilities, update as soon as you can. All right, it's another day on the internet, and we have internet weather for it. This is the top 10 most probe ports, and in the top, of course, we have 23 Telnet, followed by SSH, 22. 445 is in third place, which should surprise nobody. It has jumped up a little bit, but most because we've had some turmoil in the top few in the last week or so. Uh, 1433 is MS SQL, 3389 is RDP in fifth, which has actually jumped up two slots. 80, moving up uh, four spots. 6379 is an interesting one, that's Redis. Uh, we'll be talking about that a little bit later. 21 TCP is in eighth place, that's FTP. 1911 is uh, Niagara Tritium AX, I think it's a, right. it's a SCADA protocol for building control. And 443 is uh, TLS. So, talking about the most sources probing, and this is, this is slightly different, 445 is up a spot in first place which is still kind of weird for me to think about, but it, you know, because 23 TCP is typically always there. Uh, but in the last month or so, it's been dethroned. Yeah, but uh, 23 has only been the, the top for the last two years or so. For the, before that, for four years, we probably 445 was up there, so. yeah, that's true. Uh, 23 is in second place. Uh, Port 2000 TCP was actually in first place last week. Um, and I really tend to think that some of the, the IoT botnets that were scanning heavily on 23 were retasked temporarily for 2000. But we can talk about that one a little bit later too. 5431 is kind of interesting. Yeah, that one jumped up 68 spots. But the reason that it did is because there was a certain sudden spike. And we'll talk about that a little bit later too. Uh, 80 ICMP is just echo requests, so a whole bunch of ping going on. Uh, 5555 is Android ADB, it's the debug bridge. 
Um, 81 TCP is typically an alternate web port. Sometimes we see it in association with webcams, things like that. Uh, 6881 is BitTorrent, BitTorrent. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's UDP. Uh, in ninth place, 80 TCP, again, a whole plethora of different things that run there. And 21 TCP is FTP. So 23 Telnet is up and down quite a bit. You can see the regular uh, pattern of, of uh, the like a daily cycle there. This is the scan sources, and we up are up in the, the tens of thousands here, hundreds of thousands, actually. Um, and you can see over the last couple of weeks, there's just been peaks and valleys in general. Uh, some of the larger botnets may just be shifting their, their tactics, scanning for other vulnerabilities. You can see at the end of today, it's actually peaking back up again. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. SMB, uh, it looks, it's kind of harder to tell when you zoom in in a 60-day view here. If you zoom out over time, you can see a steady trend of climbing still. And I tend to think this has to do with uh, Eternal Blue, Eternal Romance, those class of vulnerabilities that have been around for about go almost a year now. A year now. Yeah. A year next month, yeah. yeah well, be. the vulnerability was March, mm -hmm. but the... But WannaCry? WannaCry was a year next month. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is port 2000. This was the, the top of the food chain last week. Um, this is the number of scan flows, and you can see it. It's up in the millions. That's 1E to the ninth. Uh, that's kind of crazy. It's a heck of a number. Um, but you can see in the last week or so, it has declined. But someone's still interested, just not quite as much as they had been. Uh, 5555, this is Android ADB. Uh, we know that there are some mining malware that use that as a way to get onto the device. Uh, and I had found a couple weeks ago an interesting article about Amazon Fire TV Stick, which apparently uh, was vulnerable to this as well. Now, why you would put one of those on the internet, I don't know. But then again, we have been surprised before with the sort of devices that people are willing to plug directly onto the internet. Uh, and you can see it is overall trending up, I think. Port 4786, Cisco Smart Install. This was the big right. to-do for a little while. Um, the number of scanning sources really never went all that high. I mean, we did have a, a few concentrated moments here or there, um, but really it seems to be more like a small number of sources, concentrated scanning, and that noise floor really has never really gone that high. So while it is a critical vulnerability, don't get me wrong, in Cisco, mm -hmm. it seems like it's not as widely exploited as I had expected it to be. Uh, port 6379, Redis. The port for Redis showed up this week uh, in the context of a ongoing crypto jacking campaign where it turns out that machines are being infected and then someone's dropping mass scan onto them and those are becoming high volume scanning points on their own. You can see starting around the beginning of April here, right about there, that it starts growing. I think that's when we started seeing that campaign as well. Right. So most of the, the baseline of this is probably that, that scan and infect stuff that we've seen going on. We see regular high volume spikes for scanning as well. That's another one of those ports that in general I don't think should ever be open to the internet. That's the one that, that really caught my attention most this week. And this is that 5431 that showed up. And the reason that it showed up and jumped so significantly is because there's a very small number of, of sources. Actually, no, it's not a number of sources. The, the baseline is very, relatively low, but suddenly we see these concerted efforts on the order of about 2 million popping up out of nowhere, concentrated scanning on a eh, fairly periodic basis. Um, so someone, some I would call this one entity with many scanning endpoints, is interested in this port.
Uh, and it is typically used for uh, UPnP. Have we, have we looked at the sources on this? I don't have the sources on this one, unfortunately. Because okay. um, that's the kind of pattern that you sometimes see out of some of the research mm -hmm. organizations, too. Whereas the botnet is always scanning. To, will, will, well, and it'll tend to decay off more slowly than that. This is instant on, instant it's off. It's a good point. And that's it for the internet weather. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.